As we come now before God's Word, would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. We'll be this morning again in Hebrews chapter 11. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Hmm. Lord, by your Spirit now, would you open our eyes that we would behold the wondrous things in your law? We are sojourners on the earth. Would you not hide your commandments from us? Help us now to hear and to live and to keep your word. We ask your help now. Guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Hebrews in chapter 11. We'll read here just a small section here in the middle, beginning in verse 13. I want to take up just a few of these verses. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. These all, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had no opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is God's word. This morning here, I want us to see how this is connected to a man named Peregrine Smith. Peregrine Smith. Unique name. He was an even more unique baby, but we're going to get to that in a moment. First, we need to set the stage of where we are here. You may remember that last week, we took all of chapter 11 all in one big gulp. If you don't remember, it's possible you fell asleep in the middle of the entire chapter. I hope you maybe read it later at home, but we took the whole thing in one big bundle. Chapter 11, some call the whole thing the Hall of Faith, or as the writer of Hebrews calls it at the beginning of chapter 12, the Great Cloud of Witnesses. These are people who lived by faith in a way that was testifying to Christ, pointing to the faithfulness of God. So we talked about what faith really is, that faith is trust put into action. It's enacting our trust in God. That's what faith is. So even when we're gripped by doubt or questions, we still put our trust in God. Even when we're faced with fire and sword, we still put our trust in God. Even when things are going well, it's been a great week and we're feeling healthy and strong, we still put our trust in God. And even when we look 
toward the future, a future that is unknown and seems uncertain, we still put our trust in God. Christians walk by faith in God. We do not walk by sight. That's how a Christian is able even to enter into things that are unseen. So the author pulls out unseen things like unseen events, unseen places, unseen promises, even an unseen God. And our faith, remember, is not a blind faith. It's a, our faith is a reasonable faith as we hold on to and trust a God who sees far more than we see. So even in the morning when I get up and look at my own face in the mirror, I know that God knows the number even of the hairs on my head. Even as, as we build telescopes and space stations to explore the reaches of the galaxy, we know that God knows the number of the stars and even names each one. We know that while we sometimes struggle even to understand ourselves and why we do what we do and why we think that what we think, we know that God knows even the deepest secrets of our hearts. And even while the disciples were confused and scattered when Christ was crucified, Christ was not confused. He knew all of what he was doing. He knew that while he was crucified, he would be raised again in three days as it had been planned long ago. We trust God. We trust God more than we can even trust ourselves because his understanding is beyond measure. Jesus really is better. That is the broad lens of faith. This morning, I want to take a narrower lens. We're going to zoom in on just this one small section before we move on to chapter 12. So why then did I choose to pull out this section specifically? Why this one and not any other section of chapter 11? Well, part of the reason is because I would love to look at each of the people mentioned in chapter 11, but that would take us half a year to go, you know, one for Abel, one for Enoch, one for Noah. One, that would just be too much, I think. But the main reason, I think, is because the author, as he writes, takes what looks like a pause here to summarize what he said. It's a sort of wrap-up before he goes on to talk about, you know, 20 or so more people. He's a preacher, and so he just can't stop talking. Uh, but the section here, if you look in the beginning of verse 13, starts with the words, these all these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen and greeted them from afar. That these all means there is something true about each one of these people who have walked and died in faith. And this true thing is true of all Christians. So what is it that we zoom on? Look at the end of verse 13. Let me read the whole thing again. These all, verse 13, these all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were strangers and exiles on the earth. So the question for us this morning is, what does it mean to be a stranger and an exile on the earth? 
Have you ever walked into a, 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 a place and just felt like you didn't belong? Just felt totally out of place? Like, have you ever uh, gone into a place and just realized suddenly that you are overdressed or maybe underdressed? I don't know which one's more embarrassing. I suppose it depends on the context. Or maybe you go to a place where there's a, a, a system of rituals or traditions that everybody seems to already know and somehow you don't know them, so they do certain things that you feel kind of left out of. Or maybe you've gone into a place where in a large group you're the only woman in the room. Or you're the only young person in the room. Or maybe you've been in a context where everyone else is a different race from you or speaks a different language from you. Or you've started a new job or a new church. It just feels foreign. This can be uncomfortable, hard to settle in in that context because in those situations, we just don't feel at home. Now, imagine taking a, one of those situations, and it's not just a one-time thing. This isn't just a party you showed up to and felt really out of place, so you took off and went home. Imagine that that sense of not being at home is a whole season or even indicative of your entire life to just not feel at home. I think that's the way many kids who are in foster care feel. I think that's the way refugees feel. I think that's the way that military veterans can often feel both when they're abroad and then when they come home. That's often the way that college students feel. That's sometimes the way that people in nursing homes may feel that we just are not at home. And I think, I think that Abraham understood what that feeling was like. Abraham, in the book of Genesis, calls himself a sojourner and a foreigner. And some of that we might expect, especially if you know the context of what's going on with Abraham. So one of the primary ways in which God relates to his people is by way of covenant. So in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant, uh, a set of promises with, with Abraham. And as part of God's covenant with Abraham, God says to Abraham, I want you to go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And Abraham did. He obeyed. He went. And so it makes sense that Abraham would see himself as a foreigner. This would be a whole new place and people. What's hard especially about this is that he calls himself a sojourner and a foreigner many chapters later in Genesis chapter 23. By that point, Abraham has been living in this new land for more than 60 years. And in the context there, he had to buy a small patch of a field from the, from the Hittites because his wife Sarah had died. And he just needed a place to put her body. 
Even after he'd lived there for 60 years, even then he was not settled. Even then it was not home. God had brought Abraham out of the old land of Ur. And that's not his home. Abraham does not want to go back there. But God brings him now into this new promised land, and that is not his home either. As one scholar puts this, even in the promised land, Abraham lived a pilgrim life. We can see the author talk about this in Hebrews 11. If we back up from the text we read to verses, let's see, verse 9. By faith he, by faith Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Even in this new promised land, Abraham still lived a tent life. At best, it was a semi-permanent existence. He was still seeking a true homeland. Home for Abraham is not the old country. It's not the new country. Home is the better country. It's the way the author describes it here. The author uses uh, this term, better country. He, he describes it in several different ways. He calls it the city that has foundations. He calls this better country the homeland. He calls it Mount Zion. He calls it the city of the living God. He calls it the heavenly Jerusalem. This better country is an otherworldly place. That's why the author says here that Abraham is not just a stranger in his country, but he says he was stranger and exile on the earth. This is true of all of these who live and die by faith, to be strangers and exiles on the earth. This is not just the one seeking a homeland in the Old Testament. It's still true of us. That's why the author will say later in chapter 13, verse 14, for here, he's now speaking to the audience of, of the book of Hebrews, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Peter calls Christians strangers and exiles. Paul calls us sojourners and aliens Jesus told his followers, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. What you see now is not your homeland. And even though our bodies are good, our bodies will be renewed in the new heavens and the new earth, our bodies are in scripture sometimes called tents. We live in tents. This is a semi-permanent place for this. Paul says this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if I can get there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. So we need to ask ourselves now, 
a very important question. Do you view your life this way? Are you living a tent life? Are you living as a pilgrim seeking your homeland? Or have you already settled into a nice, comfortable home in the world? William and Susanna White had a five-year-old son whom they named Resolved. Resolved White. I bet his family had lots to say about that. Um, And you might think, based on just that little bit of information, just based on the name that they chose for their kid, that maybe uh, Will and, and Sue were hipsters or maybe celebrities, but these were just regular people who lived in the 1600s. Susanna was six months pregnant with their second child when Susanna, William, and Resolved left their home in England, headed for the New World. They got on board a boat called the Mayflower as part of about 100 passengers who we now call pilgrims. And I don't want to ro- over-romanticize or make this all dramatic about their experience. We hear all of the you know, pilgrim stories around Thanksgiving, and, and I realize that that's complex, especially in relation to the natives. But what we do know about their travels is it was long and it was hard. Just on the ocean trip across the Pacific, they spent three months until they landed on November 11th, 1620, at Cape Cod, Massachusetts, in New England. One week after William and Susanna landed, Susanna gave birth to a child. They had a son. This was the first baby born to the pilgrims, the first baby native-born to the land now called America. And they named that boy Peregrine Smith. Peregrine makes me, of course, think of falcons. That's not what they're after. Peregrine is a word that means wandering, traveling, foreigner, Peregrine is essentially a synonym for pilgrim. Now, I don't know exactly why they chose to name their kid this. I mean, this is before, you know, they pull out their little baby book and flip through and try it out with the last name. And, you know, I don't know what the idea was. Maybe this idea of Peregrine being a foreigner, a traveler, is a reference to the travels they had just been through. Or maybe it was somehow a reference to the journey that was ahead of them. Or maybe both. I don't know. But it's at least interesting and ironic even that just as they have arrived in this new world, the first child in their group that's born native to the land is called foreigner. It's fitting in some ways that he would be called that. There was still a long journey for them to come.
Even though they'd found the land, they, even though they'd landed on shore, they didn't have time to build houses because winter was coming. So most of them still lived in the tiny little cramped quarters on the Mayflower for the entirety of that winter. I suppose that was their version of living a tent life. This was a famously hard winter that killed half of the pilgrims, including Peregrine's dad, William, leaving Susanna to raise two boys in a new world by herself. In one sense, they're home, but in another, they are not home. Peregrine, the infant boy, survived the winter. He grew up, got married, built a house, had seven kids. In fact, he lived a very long life. He lived well into his 80s. But even on the day that Peregrine died, his name was not changed. He would still be forever called foreigner and pilgrim. Christian, listen. Your name on earth is Peregrine. You are part of the descendants of Abraham, of the covenant of God that are in this foreign land. You are a stranger and an exile on the earth. You are a pilgrim seeking a homeland. Now, if that is really the case, if it's true that we're all exiles on the earth, and and we are, this has some pretty strong implications for how we live our lives. So I want to draw out in the rest of our time specifically just three areas that this impacts our lives, that we are exiles. If we are exiles, how does it change how we view people, how we view possessions, and how we view our pursuits? People, possessions, and pursuits, they all start with P. Isn't that handy? Let's look at the first one. If we are exiles on earth, how does this affect how we view people? The word that the author uses here that's translated as stranger in English, in the Greek is the word xenos. It's where we get the English word xenophobia. Have you heard this? Xenophobia literally means stranger fearing. And xenophobia, I know, gets tossed around in the news a lot these days. It's often associated with things like Racism and hypernationalism. Sometimes it's used as finger pointing and a weapon, and maybe that's fitting, maybe it's not. But we at least need to talk about some of this. And this is not to make a political point in one way or another. I want to be as clear about that as I can. We want to be shaped in our thinking by the Bible far and above any political rhetoric. So Christians can be thoughtful, even have biblical views on various sides of this. There can be disagreement among Christians about how the government should enact things like foreign policy, immigration policy, border laws, all of this. But one thing I know for certain, whatever your political views, your posture toward exiles... Your attitude toward people like refugees and immigrants ought to be one of love. 
your posture ought to be one of love. It is written in the law of God this way. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were a sojourner in Egypt. Did you catch the reasoning there? You were a sojourner in Egypt, therefore, treat sojourners with love. You were a pilgrim, therefore, treat pilgrims with love. You are strangers and exiles. Therefore, treat strangers and exiles with love. And I recognize that this is complex about what this looks like on a national level. So I'm not pushing a political agenda here. I'm not talking to the national government. I'm talking to you. What I am saying is that on a personal level, if you mock and scoff and belittle exiles, you have missed the point. If you do that, you show that you do not understand the love and grace of Christ to you as an exile. So treat people with love. There's the first implication. The second, the fact that we are exiles affects how we view our possessions. I don't think this will be a shocker. We're to treat our possessions with care. We're to treat our possessions with care. There are sometimes misconceptions about how to deal with this reality that we're exiles on earth. Some people would say that because we're exiles on the earth, then we can treat things like they're disposable. I mean, we're, we're just passing through after all. So some even say you shouldn't even have your own possessions, but the Bible does not say those things. We know Abraham was a stranger in his land, but he still had his own tents. He still had his own sheep. He still had his own flocks. He still had his own gold and silver, for that matter, just like we might have our own houses more permanent. We might have our own land, our own cars, our own you know, knickknacks and salt and pepper shakers, all of these things. And we care about those things. And we're to hold them in a proper way. So the fact that we're exiles teaches us to hold our possessions lightly. The fact that we live for greater things actually enables us to be generous. The fact that we're sustained by Jesus enables us to be generous. And at the same time, what we do have, we care for it as much as we're able. So don't let living for your heavenly home stop you from brushing your teeth now. Don't let living for heaven stop you from growing and cutting flowers. Don't let it stop you from cleaning your room. Don't let it stop you from enjoying sports and all of these things. We know how we, <coughs> excuse me, um, if, if we don't care for the things that we have now, how do we think that we'll be able to care for the things that were given in the new heavens and the new earth? So we're taught here to treat our possessions with care. Finally, third, this will carry us to the end. The fact that we are exiles impacts how we view our pursuits. How we view our pursuits. We want, 
We want to desire the better country. We want to look forward to the heavenly city whose builder is God. We want to seek ye first the kingdom of God. So in a sense, if you feel discontent about the world as it is now, that feeling is right. It is right to feel some measure of discontent. Not in a way that causes us to complain about our current country. Not even in a way that causes us to just reminisce about the old country and the way things were. No, in a way that actually draws us into a better country that cultivates the longing for our true home. It's a good thing to channel our pursuits heavenward. This desire in us, the desire for heavenly things, is not envy. Envy is wanting or desiring things that are not ours. It's wanting things that don't belong to us. But this heavenly city is ours. It belongs to us. We were made for it. The author here says that God has prepared it for us. Out of his great love and mercy, he's built this city for us. It's good then to desire that. Because one day we will no longer be exiles, no longer pilgrims, no longer called peregrine, but one day we will be in the home that God has made. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we, we trust you as King, and we know that you have put our citizenship in heaven would you cause this reality to shape how we view people and possessions and pursuits? Would you cause us to draw near to you? We know that you have secured this for us in Christ. And so we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.